Father, I thank you for the love that you've given us through your Son, Jesus Christ. I thank you, Father God, that we have so much because of his blood. I ask, Father God, that you'd be with us through your word, that these words would change us, transform us into the image of your Son. I also ask, Father God, that you'd be with the, the children as they go downstairs, that they would be filled with the truth, that they would know the, the truth of what Jesus has done, and that they would hear the gospel. I ask, Father God, for the children and for the adults that are helping downstairs and serving and ministering to the next generation, that the Holy Spirit would work through them. And we would have another generation dedicated to praising and worshiping God. I ask, Father God, that this time would be for you and that these words would be of you and not me. In Christ's name, amen. There's a very beautiful aspect, it's very exciting, of living as the church. And, and as we look today um, to finish the series on, on living as the church, I think this is a, a very appropriate place for us to come to. The future of the church is really awesome and glorious. And, and the future is of, of, of the church, the, the future that we have ahead of us is, is our hope and its motivation for living as the church. The imagery that we're going to look at today is, is imagery of marriage and the imagery of the church being the bride this imagery is used in several places in the New Testament, and, and this imagery is going to give us a, a forward look to a fabulous celebration as the church. We're going to be in Revelation 19, 6 through 9. And before we go there, a, a little background so you know where we're at, because a lot has transpired when you get to, to chapter 19 in Revelation. There's a lot of things that have happened um, the tribulation has taken place. The seal, bowl, and trumpet judgments have come. The, the, the time of judgments has it's, it's come to an end. And so, so time is, is moving on, and we've come to this marvelous place of celebration. And the first thing that we see in chapter 19, then, is this, this idea of celebration and praise. We see this in verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and, and the, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. That's tremendous. It's important for us to grasp a little bit about what he's, he's saying here. There's a couple of things. Paul, uh, Paul, John is having a hard time putting into to human language what he's seeing. And this is a feature that you'll see all through Revelation. That's why he says, it seemed like the voice of a great multitude. It, it seemed like it. But, but what he's getting at is, this is tremendous. This is huge. This is all of heaven, if you will. And what are they saying? Hallelujah! Well, have you ever stopped to think what that means? Hallelujah. Hallelujah is actually a, a transliteration of Hebrew. And literally, it means praise ye Yah. 
Okay, Yah, meaning uh, Yah is the shortened form of Yahweh. So literally what that word means is praise the Lord. And it's emphatic. It's emphatic. I sometimes wonder about, (coughs) excuse me, where we're at. Because in comparison to what's happening in verse 6, we're kind of, praise the Lord. Okay, cool. No, this is, this is praise the Lord. This is huge. This is massive. And part of the, the reason that we know that is if you actually look at how this word hallelujah is used in the Old and New Testament, you begin to see why we need to, we need to think of this as something a whole lot bigger than maybe we have in the past. In the Old Testament, the word was used to celebrate the salvation of God's people. That's huge. And it was also used to celebrate the destruction of God's enemies. So there's two parts to it. And you see that repeatedly as it's used, especially in Psalms. In the New Testament, you see the same kind of thing. Hallelujah hallelujah is used to express God saving and dwelling with His people. It is also used to celebrate the destruction of those who have opposed and rejected God. So hallelujah is connected to both judgment and salvation. So when we say hallelujah, when we say praise the Lord, what are we doing? We're saying thank you that you saved us and thank you that those who opposed you have been eliminated. That's huge. That's massive. And it's also eternal. Now let's go on. Revelation 19, verse 7, this praising, this group, whatever that would be, how huge that must have been. It, not must have been, it will be. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Massively important verse. Now, before we go on into some of the details about the marriage, I want us to to spend a few minutes on the bride. Marriage is really important, but I want us to focus on a couple things about the bride to help us. I believe very strongly that the bride in this passage is the church. And there's a variety of different reasons for that. You need to also understand that this this passage, there's some very difficult things in this passage. And one of the difficulties is how you actually preach this in 40 minutes. Maybe I'll go longer than that today. There's some amazing things. Some of them are a little controversial. I believe in, in how I study Scripture that the church is, is the bride. One of the reasons is some places in Scripture. Here's, here's two of them. First of all, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul writes this, verse 2. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church. And he's concerned about the Corinthians' apparent unfaithfulness to Christ. And he uses the imagery of betrothal and marriage. It's imagery. So he's using an image that everybody would understand. They'd get it. And he's applying that to help us understand. 
Paul wanted them to remain faithful to Christ. In the imagery of of the marriage then, what was understood in that culture about marriage, Paul is their spiritual father. So he's the father of the bride, if you will. And his desire is for his daughter, the bride, to be presented to the bridegroom perfect, pure, a virgin. There's a purity. So Paul's after this thing with the Corinthian church. It's the imagery of marriage. Paul also uses marriage in the church as the bride in Ephesians chapter 5, 25 through 32. So this is very familiar, and we, we always talk about this, you know, in, in marriage counseling. And, and that's, you know, it's, it, that's why it's usually known. But listen carefully to the whole passage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing with, uh, of water with the word, <clears throat> so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of the body. So, so to this point, there's several places in that passage that are using the same imagery that people would have understood in marriage. The imagery of marriage is all through that. He goes on, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul uses the picture, the imagery of the relationship between the church and Christ. He uses marriage here. He calls this a mystery. And and that word there, it means something that is revealed. It's not something hidden. This is out in the open. It refers to Christ and the church. A husband... Loving, protecting, and caring for his wife is the example of Christ's relationship with the church. And Paul's very clear there in verse 32. This mystery is profound. What? What's profound? It refers to Christ and the church. Christ is the bridegroom. The church is the bride. Now, with that, let's let's go back to Revelation 19 because we have some other things to, to help us understand this passage. The great multitude, it says, the bride has made herself ready. Okay, the bride, so the bride is the church, so the bride's all about making herself ready. So some get a little confused here. The bride does this work? What about grace? And and in reality, this doesn't really do anything, this doesn't take away from grace. This actually shows us grace because... To make herself ready is by God's grace. Paul teaches us this in Philippians chapter 2. That's one of the places we see this. Uh, Verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Well, that doesn't sound like grace. That sounds like works. 
And then Paul goes on, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what you see in that passage in Philippians is a dual effort in the sanctification process of the believer. The work of the indwelling spirit and the effort of the believer together. We also see this dual effort in in 1 Corinthians 15.10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. You see how the two work together? It's a dual effort. The obedience of the believer is made possible and supported by God's grace through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's it's a shared effort. It's really amazing because you can't really share in the effort unless you have the grace of God. You can't do it on your own. Going back to Revelation 19, John continues with his vision, and he says to clothe herself, there again, there's a dual thing that's happening there, clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. Linen, especially in in that ancient time, was very, very expensive. It It was one of the most expensive cloths. And it was beautiful. And so in John's vision, the the use of, of the word linen and that concept would represent the righteousness imputed to each believer. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, the perfect righteousness of Christ is given to those who trust in Jesus. I love 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is so intense. For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him he so in him we might become the righteousness of God. So it isn't just that we get a you know kind of a second class righteousness. We get God's righteousness. What's imputed to us through Christ is God's righteousness. Man, if that doesn't undo you somewhere inside You might be dead. I don't know. That has got to start messing with us. The the righteousness of God. So in John's vision, he's, he's talking about this glorious, bright thing. Well, what is it? The imputed righteousness of Christ himself. Doesn't get any better than that. The point here is that... This part of John's vision is that the bride is ready. The bride is ready. And this is a a key feature of of any wedding. And we got one coming up. I've asked for permission to do this. And she's sitting over here, blushing. And Cody's over there going, Yeah, she's going to be mine. Look at him. Look at him over there. Woof. For a tall boy, I tell you what. I love him so much. He picks on me too, just so that you know. Is that not true? She is doing everything possible. Her parents were in the first service and I asked. I even asked your brother. 
is Sharissa doing anything special to be ready for this wedding? And they're all going, yeah, like, wow. <laughs> Cody's not doing anything. No. <laughs> the bride gets ready. The, the bride works at it and works at it. She wants to be radiant and vibrant and beautiful. Why? For her husband to be. Even in our culture today, weddings have, they're, they're popular. All through history of, of mankind, the, the wedding is, is one of, if not the, most popular celebration. They're also one of the biggest expenses that a family goes through. I looked this up this week. The average cost in America in 2019 of a, of a wedding, so the average American wedding cost, any takers? 30, yeah, you already heard it, so yeah. $33,900. Now, now let, me, let me go on because in that same article, and, and I, I went several places, and almost all of them agreed on the 33.9 or were really close. But in, in a couple places, they talked about some more specifics. For example, in one of the articles, it did agree that American average is 33.9, but in certain parts of New York, Manhattan, you're talking like 85,000 for one event, one day, called a wedding. I asked Don earlier if he was doing that, and he's going, yeah, we're, we're going we're gonna to throw that kind of money at Shariza. Ain't happening, sister. That is in our culture. Now, let's go back to the culture that would have understood this vision that John is producing. The greatest celebration. There is no other celebration bigger than a, than a wedding. The greatest social event of all in that ancient society was a wedding. There wasn't anything bigger. There was no party, no event bigger than a wedding. And those ancient weddings were far, far more involved and elaborate than today's weddings. Far more involved. And they could last, ours, you know, you, you we're talking about a day. That's cool. We're talking about, in the ancient world, weddings took days. Sometimes weeks. So you didn't just party for one day. You might party for five, six, seven days. I asked your dad about that too, Sharissa, and that ain't happening either. <laughs> All right, so what we need to do is we need to take our idea of a wedding and marriage, and we need to go back culturally to what was understood when John gave us this imagery. So what about, what about Jewish weddings and marriage? There, there are three parts to an ancient Jewish marriage. The three parts are the betrothal, you could also say the engagement, the, pre, the presentation, and the ceremony. Those are the three parts. Keep this in mind as we look at this whole passage. The betrothal was arranged by both sets of parents. It was a legally binding contract and could not be broken except for by divorce. So once you were engaged, your parents made that choice. 
you'd have to go through a divorce to break that contract. The betrothal contract was also often signed before the couple reached marriageable age, which would have been 13 or 14 years old. And sometimes the betrothal was agreed on and signed before the birth of the children. Whoa. Yep. I know that at some point I'm going to have children. So I'm going to make sure I marry that children too. That, that children? That child to somebody, okay? Can you imagine that? Your, your mom and dad have chosen someone for you even though you aren't even born yet. And the reason why this, this was taken, the reason why this betrothal is so important is because the union of two families was extremely important in that culture. Whether or not Bob and Jane loved each other, that, you know, they'll figure that out on their own. What's important is that two families are coming together. Bringing two families together and, and keeping that marriage within the tribe, that's what was important. Yeah, you kind of hope that your kids love one another after you've planned this from maybe birth on. But what was most important was two families coming together. There's another important difference that begins to take place as you study ancient marriage. And, and that is that unlike our weddings and marriages, the center of attention was not the bride. I mean, we, we think about that. You know, you think of a wedding, where, where does your mind go? Oh, it's all about the bride. It's all about the bride. And we know that because we're watching Sharissa. It's all about her. It's all about her. Not in that culture. It was all about the groom. It was all about the bridegroom. And this starts to gel as this imagery that God uses because what we are talking about, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the focus is the, is the bridegroom. Now, the second part of marriage was the presentation. This was... This was a grand celebration, a big feast. And this is, this is what could last for weeks. This was a huge, huge party, presentation. The third part of the wedding was the ceremony. What happened in the third part's important as well as we look at the revelation of John. All three of these, are, are you can see this in what John's seeing. The ceremony. Well, the way this would, would take place is the groom would go to the bride's house. The bride is, has been ready. She's waiting. She knows that at some time the groom is going to come get her. So she's just waiting. She's trying to stay ready. He comes to her house and he takes her from her home, with her attendants. Then the bridegroom presents his bride to those who have gathered for the celebration. Lots of imagery that follows with us as the church. At this celebration, vows were exchanged, and then there's a large feast. 
after the feast, the bride and groom, you know, all the guests would leave, and then the bride and groom would leave and consummate the marriage. While this process is going on, before the the third part, before the, the ceremony, the bride and groom have been living and continue to live in their respective homes until the presentation. And then the groom comes, gets the bride, and he takes the bride to his home. There's such good imagery here of what's coming. He takes takes his bride home. You see where that's going? So let's go on. Verse 9, Revelation 19. The angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage, to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Now, in in this whole passage, we know that the groom is the Lord Jesus Christ. That should be a no-brainer to anybody who's been around the Bible, been around Christianity for very long. Jesus is the Lamb. Amen? Okay, so, so we know that this is the Lamb getting married. This is Jesus Christ. He's the bridegroom. I, I've, I've shown you a little bit of, of why the bride is the church. So we put that together. We know who the bridegroom is. We know who the bride is. So, John, help us here. Who are the invited? Who are the invited? Now, this is difficult. And, and really understand that this, this gets into some really complicated Bible study and theology. And there's some of this that, that some people would go, you're wacko. And some others would go, well, you're even more wacko. because it, it, Okay, there's some complications here. It's difficult. But I believe in the way I study the Word that those that are invited are the Old Testament saints. Well, how can that be? Uh, we're talking about those saints, that, <coughs> the, the prophets and, and priests, the faithful believers who were redeemed by grace through forward-looking faith. So, so all of those Old Testament saints became a part of Abraham, they became a part of believing before the age of the church. Here's an example, and I I think it's a good example because it's a little closer. John the Baptist, maybe you didn't realize this, John the Baptist is actually considered an Old Testament prophet. He's an Old Testament prophet because he's looking forward. He has, he's doing the work of a prophet before the church age. The church hasn't started yet. So he's ministering as an Old Testament prophet. He dies before the cross. He dies before the church age. He's a really good example of an invited guest. At the marriage supper of the Lamb. Look at this verse. This is from John chapter 3, beginning verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. This is John speaking. 
He goes on. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. He's using the same imagery. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. More marriage imagery. Therefore, this joy, what joy? Being the friend of the bridegroom is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. What John has just done is he has said, I am a friend of the bridegroom. He's an invited guest. He stands and rejoices at the celebration of the bridegroom and his beloved. He's going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb going, Hallelujah, praise God, woo let's party because look, there's the bride, she's gorgeous, but look at the bridegroom. Old Testament saints aren't the bride, but they must be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. They're not just off somewhere. They have to be there. They must be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The church, the Old Testament believers, so that includes everyone who by grace has been saved by faith in Jesus, must be at the greatest celebration of all time. And I mean that. This is what we're talking about is the greatest celebration that is ever going to occur. The marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the big one. This is the great party. This is the celebration. And if you want to really have a celebration, you want to be there. Now, there are some who hold to a little bit different understanding of the church in Israel. But as I work through Scripture, and for, for decades now, I've worked through this same idea, that there is a distinction between the church and Israel. And there's lots of theological... What, 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 it makes it more simple, and maybe that's what I need, is just simplicity to keep them distinct. That doesn't mean there's two ways of salvation and all those kinds of questions. It means God's doing something with Israel and God's doing something with the church. But here at the marriage supper of the Lamb, He's doing something, one thing. And that one thing is, let's celebrate who the bridegroom is because of what He has done. And here we are at the end of the age and we're all going to come together and we're going to celebrate. Even though there are different ways of looking at all of eschatology, the study of what's coming, we must remember that there are some things that are clear. And one of the things that, that, that is clear is here we have a picture of marriage. It's an image. And it's given to us to help understand the union between Christ and His bride. And the celebration of all believers at the end of the age. Those invited guests aren't going to come and go, well, we weren't the bride. They're going to celebrate. They're going to party. You don't go to a wedding and go, well, gee, we're not the bride. I mean, if you do that at Charissa's wedding, I'm going to slap you silly. <laughs> what are we going to do? You know, they're going to come down the aisle and we're just going to hoot and holler and yell and scream and we're going to party and we're going to feast. You're going to feed us good? Okay. There's a part of that imagery that we get. We're going to celebrate. 
So the marriage supper of the Lamb, the end of the age, the greatest celebration in human history is going to be this big, huge celebration because we're going to see a completed bride. She doesn't have any stains left. And why? Because the bridegroom has washed her with the word. And every guest at this wedding is going to enjoy and celebrate because of that. The purpose is to focus on the celebration. The purpose is to focus on the bridegroom. He is the ultimate reason for the celebration. It doesn't say this is the marriage supper of the bride. It's the marriage supper of the lamb. He died for us. He sacrificed for us. And he's brought us to this place where we're clean and we're, we're complete. We're with him. That's the imagery. This is, this is the pinnacle This is what we wait for. This is our exciting future expectation. We are looking forward to this more than anything else as believers. The greatest celebration in all of history. There is nothing that can compare. Nothing will ever compare to this one celebration. It's celebrating our salvation, but it's also celebrating The end of rebellion. There is no rebellion. Past this point, there's no more rebellion. There's no more sin. There's no more evil. We're celebrating what God has accomplished. And the beginning of eternal peace, joy, and perfect companionship with God. That's a huge celebration. Huge celebration. As the church then, as the bride of Christ... We need to look at this as being something that is absolutely secure. This is not, you know, Pastor Beal's kind of wishful thinking in the future. This is the word of God. This is factual. This is going to take place. This is going to occur. There's going to be a massive celebration. There's another thing that we need to do when we look forward to these kinds of events. There's a mindset that we get into as Christians. We, we think of Jesus taking care of, in reality, we think of Jesus taking care of what happened in the past. Here's what I mean. Not that I did this today, but I sinned this morning. No, I sinned this morning. I'm a black-hearted, wretched sinner, just like all of you, right? So I sinned this morning. After my sin, I I repent. And and part of that repentance, these two things go together. I confessed my sin to God. What's the response? Jesus forgives me. And the relationship with the Father, the relationship with God is restored. Is that not what we go through every single time we sin or should? So that's looking past. I sinned, therefore Jesus looks at what I just did and takes care of my sin. But the reality of how great and massive the work of Christ is, is he died for your sins past. He also died for your sins present. Some of you are sinning right now. Sorry. And he also died for our sins future. 
But he also provided for something even greater than just providing for our sins. He provided for a future that is marvelous and great and awesome. So there's a future aspect of what Christ has done by his sacrifice on the cross. Every single time I sin, every time you sin, Jesus Christ propitiates our sin. So he takes on the wrath of God. In doing that, I am cleansed. I am made ready for the bridegroom. Every time a healthy, functioning believer goes through that process of cleansing because of the work and the blood of Jesus Christ, they become more cleansed. They become more radiant. As a sinner, I radiate more glory because I display the work of Christ. Every single time I sin and I receive forgiveness from Jesus Christ, I radiate His glory. And in that work... I passionately look forward to the incredible, awesome perfection of glorifying Jesus. He cleanses me and you. He cleanses his church. Why? So that he can be glorified. So that at his marriage, he is glorified by this radiant, beautiful, cleansed, righteous bride. Part of the forward looking that we need as believers is seeing God working his plan in us to be the radiant glory of the truth of Christ's sacrificial death and glorious resurrection. That's a fundamental part of what it means to be the church. Each time he washes me of my sin, I look forward to the perfection of being with him and the glory I will experience in his presence. For all of eternity. Imagine that. Think about that. Every time you sin, if you're a believer and you you take that to God and He forgives you, you're glorifying Him. And at some point, you're going to stand face to face, eye to eye with Jesus. And He's going to say, you're clean and you're my bride and you you radiate all His glory. Come and be with me. I want everybody to see you. I'm going to present you as my precious, glorious bride. The only way that can happen is if he does his work. And he's done the work. So what do we have to look forward to? We have this amazing relationship with Jesus to look forward to. And we have this celebration. I'm going to experience this presence for all of eternity. It's forward-looking. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 3, 13, 13 through 16. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. What's the goal? Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Put the past behind. Look at what's coming. 
The marriage of the Lamb. You're the bride. You're going to be there. You're going to be there with all the saints of all time. And we're going to have one massive, huge, incredible celebration. All centered around the bridegroom. There's some places that this takes us. It's a list of why we rejoice now. This, this forward look affects us now. So here, here's how. We hold true now. And we greatly rejoice now because Jesus loves us. And he has freed us from our sins by his blood. We rejoice now. Even, even in looking forward, we rejoice now because Jesus holds the keys of death and Hades. That's huge. We rejoice now because our Savior, the groom, is coming. He's coming. He's coming soon to consummate His kingdom, to bring us to His house. He says that to us. Is He coming? Is He just going to show up and go, well, this is nice knowing you. No, the imagery of the marriage, what's he going to do? He's going to come and he's going to get his bride and he's going to take his bride and he's going to present that bride spotless to the entire universe and then he's going to take us to his home for all of eternity. Rejoice. We rejoice in that now. So we rejoice now also because we have this future hope. That kind of future hope helps us understand that there is nothing in this world, nothing that can compare. Nothing can come close, come come close, come close to providing what Jesus provides. Our future hope is in a spectacular, amazing celebration with the King of Kings, the creator of the universe, the God who knows everything there is to know, and He loves us. We rejoice now, knowing that one day we will be securely with our bridegroom, our Savior, our King, and our God. That is going to be secure. It cannot be taken away from you if you're a believer. There's security in that. We're going to be with Him. So there's some questions that I finish with. I think these are really highly important. As the church, brothers and sisters, if you're here this morning, you're a believer, you're the church. So as the church... Are you eagerly waiting for the coming of Christ? Yes. Are you really? You know, we've got, a, we, we've got a young couple, and I keep picking on them, but it's so cool that we're doing this. Is there any expectation, Cody? Oh, he says. <laughs> Sharissa, are, are you excited about what's coming in a few weeks? Yeah. There's an expectation. That's for a worldly marriage. How about this one that we're talking about? Do you have any expectation? Are you eagerly waiting for the day that Jesus Christ, the groom, comes to you and says, come be with me and come to my house? You looking for it? Second question. 
do you look with the greatest expectation, humanly possible, for the coming of Jesus? Now, sometimes when we were little, we go, I can't wait for Christmas. I can't wait for Christmas. And we get all excited, you know. know, Maybe you do that as an adult, too. I don't know, but... Right? This is massive. This is incredibly huge. Are you ready? Do you want him to come? Is that your greatest expectation? So that leads to another question. Is the coming of Jesus and the marriage supper of the Lamb precious to you? Is it precious? The value of it is more than anything that you can imagine in this life. Do you anticipate the coming like a bride and groom anticipate their coming wedding? I watch these two characters, man. And I've done this with other marriages. There's an anticipation, right? They're looking forward to being man and wife. What's our expectation? Are we anticipating? Could it be today? Could it be today? This is, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. What are we anticipating? Next question. Do you work through life's difficulties by always returning to the truth that Jesus is coming? So, so life throws you a curveball, and life gets really rough, tough, and ugly... But your mind, your, your, your mind just, just keeps coming back. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. My bridegroom's coming. We need, we need to be challenged with that. Because that relates to the next question. Do all your problems fade into nothing when your mind, and part of that is by your choice, coming back to the thought of seeing Jesus face to face? There is nothing that will be more glorious than to see Jesus. The heavenly kingdom is lit by His glory. There's no need for the sun. And you're going to see Him face to face. And not only are you going to see Him face to face, you're going to see Him face to face in a relationship that is uniquely intimate and personal. He loves you and you will see Him face to face in all that glory. So what kind of problem is there? Man, I got to preach that to myself all the time. It's our problem. I mean, really, come on. Maybe it's shoveling, you know, two feet of snow. I don't want to do that. Well, that kind of fades when you look at Jesus face to face. I don't have enough money for this month. Well, you know what? I get to look at Jesus for all of eternity. I'm going to be with him. He loves me like a a groom loves his bride. He loves me that way. What problem do I have? You're going to see him face to face. And the last question is a very church-related question because this is something that the church has prayed throughout the history of the church. It's a simple prayer. Very, very simple, and yet it is loaded. What's the prayer? 
Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. We don't pray that enough. Come, Lord Jesus. Father, thank you that we have a glorious, amazing future. Find in us a heart that is soft, ready, and willing to accept the truth of what you've done. Come, Lord Jesus. There's nothing more important, nothing more grand. Holy Spirit, stir up in us that every day we look with anticipation for what is coming for the church. And let that expectation drive us to serve and be a part and and fellowship and be the church and live as the church, knowing that we have this incredible, amazing future in your presence. Thank you, Father, for the church. And thank you, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.